Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. You go to Children's Church, James chapter number 2. Uh, in the scriptures, James chapter number two. The the passage uh, begins in verse 14 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. It is not without controversy, uh, this section of scripture. Uh, It is uh, not uh, a, a section of scripture that is clear to everyone. Uh, a lack of clarity. Controversy and lack of clarity are important issues for the church to work on, sure. But uh, my concern on this chapter is that it doesn't concern people. That they get locked into the controversy or the lack of clarity, but they miss the point about what does it mean when James says that without works your faith is dead being alone. One of the goals of this sermon that James is preaching is uh, to help the church see what maturity in Christ is. He made that point back in chapter 1 and verse 4 concerning trials. Let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the purpose of trials to bring completeness. James is going to make that point again in chapter number three, and we'll see this next week when he says in verse two that if you can control your tongue, it's an indication that you can control your life. Isn't that something? In other words, if you can't control your tongue, what you say, really is an indication that you can't control your life. So so these two kind of bookends help us to see what James is driving at towards what does it mean to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And those two examples fall under the larger issue that James is focused on, and that is for the church to live in obedience to those two great commandments that Tom referred to just a bit ago in the scripture reading, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this underlying theme of being faithful to the law keeps kind of, it's working its way as James writes this letter, or as some would say, preaches the sermon. He calls it the law of liberty and chapter 1 and verse number 25. He calls it the law of freedom. It's the royal law. It's the perfect law. It's a law that encompasses all of what life should be for a Christian. And so here's my big idea for the sermon. It'll be up on the screen. And Sarah, I forgot to tell you, but let's just leave it up the whole, the whole time. A mature faith, a faith that works, will love God even though the trials may be great. A mature faith, a faith that works, will love one's neighbor 
by using words to bring life and not death to their neighbor. And so this is going to get worked out this morning in the sermon because James is going to use two heroes of the Jewish faith to teach us about faith and works. Uh, the first is Abraham, and the second is Rahab. The illustration that we find in verse number 14 opens a window into the issue of faith that is dead or worthless because it brings no fruit. Let me read. Uh, I said 314. It should actually be 214. Uh, let me read chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? And here's the illustration. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet... You do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. The key phrase being, what use is it? What use is it? End of verse 16. And then the illustration is intended to bring out the idea and the comparison is made in verse number 17 with the phrase, even so. What use is it? Even so, faith. So the illustration opens the window to understand the importance of having a faith that works just as it would be of no use for someone who has not eaten, does not have proper clothing, they're destitute for you to look at them and say, be warm, be filled, go your way. That's of no use. Even so, if you say you have faith, but you have no works, it's of no use. It's dead being by itself. We miss Jim Weaver, don't we? And I remember uh, Jim often saying to me, anticipate the objection." Of course he would say that. He was a teacher. <laughs> James, uh, in this sermon, anticipates an objection. When he then follows in verse number 18, but someone may well say, there's the objection, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then James just drives this home in verse 19. You believe that God is one? You're doing really well. You've matched the devils. They believe and shudder. And I've often said, I don't even know how many people shudder. So we really don't match the demons, do we? When we don't even shudder. And in light of this, then James restates his point in the form of a question in verse number uh, 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And the implication is clear. Is that what you believe? Do you believe 
that faith without works is useless? Or do you believe like, well, you know, it's okay just to believe in God. I don't have to do much. Signed, sealed, delivered on my way, you know, to glory. Or are we, as a congregation of God's people, developing a life of faith that is bearing the fruit of faith as it learns to love God and to love neighbor with all that we have? In other words, as we're going to see here in the illustration, like Abraham and Rahab of old, are we showing signs of a maturing faith? A faith like Abraham that endures trials, and a faith like Rahab that uses words to bring life and not death to her neighbors. The illustration that James uh, uses uh, begins then in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? He then incorporates Rahab into the conversation in verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? When God comes to Abraham, he does so with a promise. And that promise, you might recall, was that if Abraham trusted God, God would bless him. And God would make of him a great nation. People would be born to him, and not only would he uh, have a great nation, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You remember the graphic way God said it to Abraham? He says, your descendants will be as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the... Thus you'll be blessed. I mean, that's massive. That is massive. And when Abraham receives this promise, he... He takes action. He begins to follow God. He demonstrates that he believes God. But then there's this trial. Again, if you recall the story, the trial is, of course, that Abraham and his wife Sarah can't produce one child, let alone multitudes of children. Just think about how hollow the promise sounds from God who says, I'll bless you with multitudes, scads of descendants, and then month after month, year after year, decade after decade, no children. Trial of faith, growing faith into maturity. But then, God comes and visits, and and through a miraculous, divine miracle, Sarah conceives in her old age. And she laughs about it, right? She laughs about it. But then, God brings another trial. The son born in their old age, Isaac. God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter number 22, I want you to take him to the top of the mountain. And there I want you to sacrifice him. mature faith, a faith that works, will love God even though the trials may be great. And there goes faithful Abraham taking Isaac, loading up the donkey and all that's needed to offer the sacrifice. And he takes him to the top of Mount Moriah. 
and there he's going to offer it. And James reaches back into the history of his faith and he pulls this illustration forward to show us what a faith that works looks like. A heart that is so in love with God that it is willing to offer that which is most precious into the service of God. You know, although the story of Rahab appears to be different than that of Abraham, it really isn't. And this one, you know, probably not as well known, uh, but you should go back and read it from Joshua chapter number 2. I'm just going to give you the highlights. Uh, The exodus had occurred, 40 years went by, the generation coming out of enslavement in Egypt died. A new generation is raised up. Moses goes off the scene. Joshua is now the leader, and it's time finally for Israel to obey and cross. They do the Jordan. They come to Jericho, and Joshua sends in two spies. And they end up in the house, or probably an inn, of this woman, Rahab, who either herself was a prostitute or had a business for prostitution in her house or in the inn for travelers and visitors, whatever, who would come. And so these two spies sent by Joshua go to the house, and the king of Jericho receives news about this. He goes to Rahab and says, where are the men? And Rahab uh, doesn't tell the truth. She diverts the king in a different direction while she hides the spies on the rooftop. And then... um, in, in what is, you know, most certainly an overlooked passage, and one of the strangest, strangest things when you really think about it, here in this pagan city, this pagan woman, in a business that is not of, of, of repute, in uh, Joshua chapter number, uh, Joshua chapter number two, listen, listen to what she says, uh, or you can turn there if you're, if you want to get there in Joshua chapter number two, listen to what uh, she says to the men uh, that she has uh, sheltered, that she, that she has hidden. Um, verse number nine, I know, this, this is just incredible, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land will be melted away before you. Now here's why she says this, verse 10 of Joshua 2. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. How many years ago was that? Forty years ago. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it of what happened 40 years ago, Our hearts melted and had no courage remain in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And on that basis, she brokers a deal that if she hides them and takes care of them, that when the armies march into Jericho, that they will take care of her and her family. A mature faith, a faith that works, will love one's neighbor by using words to bring life and not death 
to their neighbor. Isn't it surprising that the action she takes is rooted in an inward attitude about God, and it's all based upon what she had heard about God 40 years ago. Equally surprising is that she didn't look at those men and say, yeah, we're not afraid of you any longer because you all didn't believe God and wandered around in the wilderness and died. She is still locked in somehow on the great redemption of the Exodus and God's deliverance of his people. So we have these two illustrations that then lead us to a vantage point so that we can confidently answer the question that James raises in chapter 2 of his sermon. What good is it to say you have faith but have no works to validate your faith? Can that faith save you? The answer is clear. A faith that is not filled with works that demonstrate a love for God and a love for neighbor is not sufficient to save. It is not sufficient to save. Rahab and her family would not have been saved without her good works. And neither the family of Abraham would have been saved without his good work. James says even the devils know this. Which then raises a question. Why are so many people who go to church living in a delusion about this? Thinking themselves safe and secure when there's no fruit of righteousness, no fruit of righteous work in their life, no love of God, no love of neighbor. You know, I think many who believe in God, little g, are simply fooled about what it means to be a Christian and what is required in order to have eternal life. Remember, James starts his sermon by saying he is a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he began this particular section in chapter number 2 by describing Jesus as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. To have Faith that works is the first and foremost to have faith in Jesus alone, through faith alone and grace alone. By God's grace in Christ we are saved. But it was the proclamation that Jesus is Lord that filled the apostolic message. That in order to have a faith that saves, you must be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although the two illustrations that James uses may not appear to point us to Jesus, Lord, they actually do. You see, when Genesis records the actions of Abraham, it focuses on the external act. He gets up early. He takes Isaac, loads up the donkey. They go to Moriah. He unloads it. He builds the altar. He places Isaac on it. He raises the knife. It's all external action that's recorded for us in Genesis 22. But when the author of Hebrews wants to help the church understand the nature of faith, he provides an insight into the heart and mind of Abraham that then completes the picture. It shows us something about what Abraham is thinking as all of this is unfolding. Hebrews, just a few pages back to your left in chapter number 11 Listen to verses 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had 
received the promises, was offering up his only begotten son. Verse 18, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Now look carefully. This is a deep dive into God's word here. Look carefully at verse 19 of Hebrews 11. He, that is Abraham, considered, that's a key word, he considered, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. The type, right, the type, okay? But I have a question first. What did Abraham consider? According to the writer of Hebrews, what did he consider? Verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Now, we have no record, or do we, that Abraham had seen somebody raised from the dead? Now, you, you, know, you might have to roll through your you know, Bible memory catalog. Did Abraham ever see somebody raised from the dead? Da, 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 you know? But you don't really have to go too far to get to the answer. The answer would be yes. Wasn't his impotence in old age a sense of death? Wasn't the barrenness of Sarah's womb a death? An impossibility? I, I take the writer of Hebrews, when I put these together, uh, Genesis and James and the writer of Hebrews, I take this to mean then that if you try to conceive a child for decade after decade and no life is conceived, it's not out of the question that what, might, what you might say is the womb is dead and then for a womb to come to life, Abraham would know that God can bring life out of that which is dead. And so when I put my son on the altar, I'm going to consider the miracle that God had performed, he can perform again, bringing my son back from the dead. A mature faith, a faith that works, will love God even though the trials may be great. To be a Christian is to have a faith that works like the faith of Abraham. It takes action based on on the truth that it considers. It is what James would have said earlier in chapter 1. The blessed man is the man that looks at the perfect law and abides in it. He stays in it. He isn't going away quickly from it. As again, what Tom mentioned from Psalm 1, blessed is the man who stays, making the law of the Lord his meditation day and night. There is great lack of work in the church because there is great lack of faith and there's great lack of faith because there's a great lack of considering the promises that God has made as revealed to us in the word of God. To have, uh, to have faith, to be a Christian, and a Christian that works is to have faith like Abraham, takes action on truth as you consider the promises made. And as we, with James, kind of pull this story forward, then what do we find? We find another father who takes his son up on top of a mountain to sacrifice him. And this is what the writer of Hebrews means when he uses the word type. 
Abraham and Isaac are acting out a drama that is going to be played out in full thousands of years later when the older brother of James is taken to the top of the Mount Golgotha, the son of Mary, whose conception was also miraculous. And when that fully divine and yet fully human son goes to the top of the mountain, his life is not spared. There's no ram in the thicket. The knife is plunged into our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Jesus knew something, right? He knew that his father would keep his promise and that he would raise him from the dead. The one whose life was not spared died so that your sin debt, my sin debt, our sin debt could be forgiven and that the power of sin would be broken. And you may not recall, but you should go back and read Genesis 22. Because after the deliverance, the ram is in the thicket, and the ram is offered in sacrifice, Abraham renames the mountain. The Lord will provide. And when we look back at Golgotha, what do we see? The Lord provided the once-for-all sacrifice. And Jesus, now the object of our faith, that empowers us to do the work that he indeed has given us to do. But to be a Christian is to have a faith that works like Abraham, uh, like Rahab as well. She too considered something, didn't she? she? She, in her mind, I just find this so, so wonderful and so enriching. She, in her mind, thought back to what she had heard about the miraculous deliverance out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Abraham, the miraculous conception, dead womb coming to life. Rahab, miraculous uh, deliverance, slaves set free by a powerful empire. And she says, we know that you're going to kill us. And here you are, 40 years later. But for Rahab, the story of divine deliverance was not a past historical event. It was a present reality. She was acting on faith and, and, and what had happened, but she also believed what would happen. And you know, our salvation has worked out the same. 2,000 years ago, we proclaimed without any hesitancy that on top of Golgotha, Christ died for sinners, a once-for-all sacrifice, so that your sin, my sin, our sin, the sins of all who come to him would be um, forgiven. And we don't live that in the past, we live that in the present. Which then generates the engine of good works in our life. That's how faith works. It considers, as Rahab considered, it considers today. We believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, God's divine deliverer, based on what he did 2,000 years ago, what he is presently doing in our lives, and what he will complete when he comes to judge the living and the dead. With Paul, we go out and we say, and we plead with people, be, be reconciled to God. As we'll learn later in James, the judge is standing at the door. So, so what needs to change in you? What needs to change in us so that we begin to incorporate these truths and have a faith that works? These two illustrations that James shows us, they, they teach us, that, well, here's what a mature faith looks like. 
outward action, shaped by inward attitudes from the word of God. What we have heard, what we have seen, we go forward, beginning with what God has done in our lives. Chapter 1, 18 of James, it was in the exercise of his will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. It continues as we give ourselves to that word of truth. We are no longer going to be forgetful hearers, but what are we going to be? Doers of it. That's how we will be blessed, and we make it our meditation. We live in the light of the perfect law, the law of freedom. Is that how you're living? Is that how we as a church are going to live in this present day when great trials are upon us and great words of love and life need to be spoken. But you know, for James, it isn't only that, you know, he's recalling the stories of his faith in Abraham and, 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 and Rahab. Something else is going on. In the New Testament, you have three times where Abraham and Rahab come together. James and Hebrews, but also in Matthew chapter number one. And, and I want you to go there. It's the first book in the, in the New Testament. Fairly easy to find. First chapter, you don't even have to go very far into it. First couple of verses, you don't even have to find it very hard. Matthew 1. This is why genealogies are so important. Here's, here's the third way that Abraham and Rahab come together. It's the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of, of, of whom? Abraham, yeah. And Abraham's the father of Isaac, and Isaac's the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadad, and Aminadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. The only woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ was a woman who believed 40 years prior that God was the God of heaven and earth. That's, that's great, isn't it? I mean, that's like a wow moment. So for James, it's not just generations ago, Abraham was his father, but Rahab was his mother as well. And in this connection, it's bringing him into a faith that works now as a follower of Jesus Christ. James, a recipient of God's salvation through the one who loved his father, God, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves his neighbor. So what's the takeaway for you today? Just interesting kind of Bible information, just kind of an interesting Bible story, or is there a lesson that can change your life? But you know, in Abraham and Rahab, we see actions that had immediate results, but also carried future implications. Rahab saved her family, saved herself, and is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, along with Abraham whose action had immediate results but future implications as well. Do we really ever know what effect our love for God and neighbor is going to have now and in the long term? 
And, and it's hard sometimes to measure, isn't it? Which is why I think there's so little interest among Christians. Oh, I like the controversy of this passage. Oh, we can argue about it. Oh, the passage isn't very clear. I'm just going to go to something else. Or how many people look at this passage and say, ah, I know I'm going to heaven. That's all that matters. Well, apparently not. To be a church in real life is to be a church that is living with faith that works now so that we give faith that works to those growing up around us, to those yet to be born. That's what maturity looks like. That's what a mature faith looks like. And may God give us the faith of Abraham and the courage of Rahab to go and to do likewise. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We are just so dependent on your spirit now to help us to apply it. Our church, O oh Lord, needs to be renewed and revived in good works, not just faith, but good works that come through considering what we actually believe and what you, O oh God, can do. Before we come to this table, let us repent of any sins where there is a lack of love and devotion to you and a lack of love and devotion to our neighbor so that we might be re ready to receive the strength this table offers. We'll remain in quietness as Pastor Mike comes and leads us to the table. The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeetown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeetown, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.